chapter 13. This morning's message is the first missionary journey. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Chapter 13 now is a turning point in the book of Acts. The first 12 chapter, chapters focused on Peter's ministry. The rest of the book now focuses on Saul and his ministry. <clears throat> Up to now, the emphasis has been on the Jewish church in Jerusalem and Judea. Beginning with chapter 13 this morning, through chapter 28, again, the, the rest of the book, it describes the spreading of the Gentile church and witnessing throughout the Roman world. And it's flourishing because of the lively, biblically sound, Holy Spirit-filled, Holy Spirit-led church at Antioch where the missionary outreach to the Gentiles got started. The church had leaders that were filled with the Holy Spirit, serving in a spiritual ministry, who went on a spiritual mission and faced spiritual opposition and spiritual victory. Now, we hear that term spirit-filled a lot. Hopefully we do. Um, and especially when it comes to a church. What are the signs of a spirit-filled church? And to many, they're different things. And I think it has a lot to do with maybe the church you were brought up in. Um, when we first started the church in the theater in 1992 and, and God was blessing it, you know, there were a lot of people that were coming and it was new and, and, and people were being saved. Their lives were being changed. Um, we, we saw God working. And I remember one morning I was out in the foyer, which was the snack bar area really at the theater, and a lady came up to me and introduced herself. She says, you know, the church, this church isn't spirit-filled. I said, okay. Now, I wasn't going to argue with her. I just, she said, I go, well, you know, people are getting saved. People are growing in Christ. Their lives are changing. Um, that's the work of the Spirit. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And, you know, she went on to share her feelings. And, I, well, okay, you know, I, I just let it go at that. But, again, what are signs of a spirit-filled church? Now, some people think it's seeing people up on the platform or stage, whatever you want to call it, being slain in the spirit. Pastor puts his hand on the forehead and he's praying, and boom, down she goes, and they're catching her. Well, I don't see that in the Bible. Now, when God slays in the Spirit, you don't get up. <laughs> Some people thought it was, you know, while the pastor's preaching, you know, he's hopefully the Spirit's flowing through him and speaking. Somebody gets up and speaks in tongues. I find that odd because here's the Spirit speaking through the pastor. Now, this person gets up and he begins to speak or she, and, and now you got the Spirit <laughs> interrupting the Spirit. God's a God of order and design. 1 Corinthians 14 speaks about the use of the gifts. And we believe in the gifts, but in order, as the Bible says. Um, 
Others think it's just, hey, they get up and do what they feel they have to do because the Spirit grabbed a hold of them and they had no control over what they did. And then they blamed some not-so-good behavior on the Holy Spirit. I couldn't help myself. You know, I was, he, was in, he, he had control of me. And yet Paul said, hey, you know, I, I speak when I will and I do what I will. In other words, the, 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 we, we have control over our own bodies and, and, and spirit. So, you know, I, I don't find a lot of the things that they say are, you know, signs of being spirit-filled in the scriptures. But I do see some things <clears throat> that the Bible says. First of all, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5, he said, eagerly pursue and seek to acquire love. He says, and earnestly desire and cultivate spiritual gifts, especially that you may, and here it is, especially that you may prophesy. Now to prophesy, as Paul is speaking about, is to prophesy the divine will and purpose in inspired preaching and teaching. That is, to, to d- desire to know the divine will of God and, and the purpose of God through preaching the word of God. And then Paul says, for one who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands or catches his meaning because in the Holy Spirit he utters secret truths and hidden things not obvious to the understanding. So again, um, speaking in tongues, that's wonderful in the right setting and in the right order. But in a church setting, it says he he speaks to God and not to man and, and we don't understand what's being said. Well, that doesn't edify us or build us up. And then it goes on, it says, uh, it goes on to say, speak, uh, again, he speaks to men for the, uh, I'm sorry, but on the other hand, the one who prophesies, says the one who prophesies speaks to men for their upbuilding and constructive spiritual progress and encouragement and consolation. He who speaks in an unknown tongue edifies and improves himself, but he who prophesies, that is interpreting the divine will and purpose of God through the teaching, edifies and improves uh, the church and promotes growth in Christian wisdom, piety, piety, holiness, and happiness. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, since you are so eager and ambitious to possess spiritual gifts and manifestations of the Holy Spirit, concentrate on striving to excel, to abound in them in ways that will edify, build up the church. Three times in 1 Corinthians 14, the word edify or edification is mentioned. The key word in what you do in the, in the church is edification. In other words, a worship service should lift up the Lord and build up the saints and not puff up the participants. Our gifts, the gifts that God gives us are to build each other, we're to build up the church. Not to puff up ourselves. Oh, I got this gift and I got that gift and I can speak in this tongue and I can interpret. No, whatever gift I have is for your benefit. I'm to use it to build you up and you are to use your gifts to build me up. We're to build up the body of Christ. Now, you know, when, when people say, well, you're, you're, you're quenching the spirit or you, you're not allowing the spirit to move here. Uh, you know, it, it, when, when, when that happens... When you don't allow some of these things to take place, slain in the spirit or whatever they might think it is, or the speaking in tongues during the, 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 the morning service, you are accused, and you will be accused at times, of quenching the Holy Spirit. 
Or again, the church is not spirit-filled. But the only spirit I'm quenching is that individual spirit. Not that I'm putting, I'm putting the person down or I'm trying to quench their spirit, per se. But I'm, I'm not allowing what they think should take place in the church because I don't see it in the Bible. We always have to have a biblical basis for what we do. And if it's not, if it's not in the Scripture, well, we're not going to do it. But what I do see... Okay, what does a spirit-filled church look like then? A spirit-filled church may be defined simply as a church whose members, and this is Scripture, Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I've seen a lot of people over the years that have gifts, can speak in tongues or whatever that gift might be, but they're not walking in the Spirit. They're not living a godly life. So... Paul said, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, to walk in the Spirit means to walk in obedience to the will of God. Paul said in Galatians 5.25, if we live in the Spirit, then let us also walk in the Spirit. Our behavior, our walk must match the, the character and the attributes of the Holy Spirit. I also read that we are to pray in the Spirit. Ephesians 16, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. That means with the heart and the soul absorbed in that prayer. It is put up, that prayer goes up with a true heart. It goes up with a right spirit, without hypocrisy. It goes up in a spiritual way with fervency under the influence by the assistance of the Holy Spirit. That's Spirit-filled. They read, they obey the word of God, they witness, they take care of the needy. That's a spirit-filled church. Philippians 3.3, Paul said, worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13.1 and 2, if I can speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Notice that. He says, you can have all these gifts. But if you have not love, it, it, it's meaningless. And if I have prophetic powers, you know, uh, uh, and understand all the secret truths and mysteries and possess all knowledge, and if I have enough faith to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Spirit-filled church has love in it. Among some of the other things, praying in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, worshiping in the Spirit. So again, uh, worshiping in the Spirit, rejoicing in Christ Jesus, and to have no confidence in the flesh. And because God tells us His will in Scripture, then a Spirit-filled church has to be deeply committed to the Word of God. I mean, how, how can we not agree with that? If we're going to know the will of God and be a spirit-filled church, then we have to be deeply committed to the Word of God. And when you read Ephesians 5 and you read Colossians 3, it shows us that being filled with the Holy Spirit and letting the Word of God dwell richly in us uh, produces the same effects. 
Listen to Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul said, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another. Notice that. We are to submit to one another in the fear, the reverence of God. And I love what D.L. Moody said, and we all should write this down and have it somewhere where we can read it all the time. He said, I have noticed that when a man is full of the Holy Spirit, he is the very last man to be complaining of other people. He loves everybody too tenderly. He loves even a cold church and is anxious to lift them up and bring them to a kinder feeling and sympathy. That is so right on. A Holy Spirit church does not complain about others. They don't, uh, they even love a cold church. And I've heard, oh, you know, this church is cold. And, you know, I've heard that through the years, whether it's this one or others. Oh, this is, the, that church is a cold church. Well, the Holy Spirit person loves that church. And not, they're anxious to lift them up. Instead of leave or run away or talk bad or complain. That's being spirit-filled. And that's why the church at Antioch was doing so good. That's why it was thriving. That's why it was growing. That's why it was witnessing throughout the whole Roman world. Now let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 13. and And it reads, Now in the church that was Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Five men are listed here. Effective, strong churches, as you would expect, they have godly leaders. And that's why the church at Antioch was healthy and it was flourishing. God has always emphasized the importance and necessity of spiritual leadership. You know, whether it's a secular organization or a spiritual organization, it's going to fail or succeed depending upon its leadership. And these five men mentioned here in verse 1 were the heart of the ministry at Antioch. They were the reason for it flourishing. These men, it says here, were serving as prophets and teachers in the church. And Paul said that that the prophets helped to lay down the foundation for the church as they preached the word of God. They understood and taught men the divine will and purpose in inspired preaching and teaching. They were more like forth-tellers than foretellers. In other words, they spoke forth what was going on at the present time, you know, based on the teaching of the Word of God. They weren't, you know, preaching what was going to happen, you know, in future events, although some of them did. The teachers helped to get the new believers rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Verses 2 through 5. As they ministered, speaking of these five men just mentioned in verse 5, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. 
And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John, that is John Mark, as their assistant. Now notice when he preached that they preached, what was it they preached? The word of God. Now God had already called Saul to the ministry, to the ministry to, to the Gentile. And now God is calling Barnabas to serve with Saul. And then the church confirms their calling, commissions both of them, and then sends them both out. Now, when we ordain somebody, we are not passing something on to them that they didn't have already. We're not giving them the ability or a gift. We're not making them ministers. We're just agreeing and approving what God has already done in that person. Because it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through the local church to equip and enlist believers to go out and to serve. That's why the Lord said himself that he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Notice, for the what? The edifying. There it is again, the word edifying. For the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. It's mentioned that here, it's mentioned here that, that Barnabas and Saul also took John with them to help them. Now, Mark was sometimes called by his Jewish name, John, and sometimes by his Roman name, Mark. Thus, the name John Mark. Chapter 4, verse 10 of Colossians tells us that he was Barnabas' cousin. And in Acts 12, 12, it says that the believers gathered in John Mark's mother's home in Jerusalem. Peter's probably one, the one who led John Mark to the Lord. John Mark helped Saul and Barnabas in a lot of ways. You know, he took care of some of the responsibilities that, that helped free up uh, Saul and Barnabas so that they could, again, spend time in the important ministry of, of the Word of God and prayer. The word ministered in verse 2 means a public servant. It means to minister publicly in a sacred office, in works of charity, and also to lead in public worship. So the leaders of the church at Antioch faithfully carried out the ministry that God called them to, as Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. But in Scripture, the word ministered means more than public service. It also describes performing priestly or ministerial roles. So serving in a leadership role in the church must be regarded and I mentioned this before, as an act of worship to God. Whatever you do, whatever I do in a leadership role in the church is an act of worship. What I'm doing is for God. It's worship to God. This service, this mention here, consists of offering, that is the word ministered, it consists of offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord, including prayer, it includes overseeing the flock of God. It includes studying and preaching and teaching the word of God. It, it's whatever you do is for God. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever, do all to the glory of God. Have that, have that eye, have that purpose that what I'm doing is, to God, is for God. That's why it's important to keep in mind that you are serving the Lord first. We're not serving man. We're not serving anybody. But we're, we're serving the Lord first. And that helps because, you see, if your mindset, if your thinking is that you're serving the people, and you are, but you're serving the Lord first, 
within the people. You're serving them through the Lord. If your mindset is that you're serving the people, you'll be tempted to compromise in your service. But you see, if you remember and you, and you make the Lord God, the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the object of what you do, I'm doing this for the Lord, it takes away that, that need or that temptation to compromise. Because if I, if I keep it in my, man, in my head that I am serving God, I'm not going to compromise. Or it's going to be a lot harder for me to compromise because I need to give God my best. I got to give him all, and, and I don't want to compromise. Then we see them fast and pray before they sent the, the, the two out. But the Bible often ties fasting in with times of constant, fervent prayer. And believers may be so consumed sometimes with spiritual matters, you know, that they lose the desire to eat, or they set aside food to concentrate on that fervent time of prayer. And for those who know little about fasting, they may know little about this kind of concern of, 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 you know, of fasting. Now, nowhere in Scripture are we as believers commanded to fast. But you know what? Jesus took it for granted that we would. Matthew 6, 17, he says, but when you fast, notice. He didn't say, well, if you guys fast, no. He says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. And then in Luke 5, 33 through 35, they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But notice, he says, But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. There was no doubt. Compared to the, the, to the hypocrites, uh, the, the Pharisees and uh, the hypocritical Pharisees, you know, they fasted. Their fasting wasn't for God's eyes only. It was for the people too. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 16 through 18, Moreover, notice, when you fast, there it is again. He took it for granted. When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to, be, uh, appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Fasting is something uh, that you don't hear a lot about anymore or people, the church does very much anymore. God gave us fasting in order to weaken our flesh. And to strengthen the spirit because there's too much giving in to the flesh. We are not to cater to the flesh. And I think a lot of people would say it's pretty normal that, you know, they make sure that they eat three times a day. And it's a habit for us to eat three times a day. And we're pretty good at, at, at eating those three, three meals, no matter how tired we are or how busy we are. We're very good at making sure we feed our bodies. And too many times we're more concerned about feeding our, our flesh rather than feeding our spirit. And that's the constant battle. Which one is the strongest? My spirit, the, the spirit of God, or my flesh? Because whichever one's the strongest is the one that's going to win over. We can go for a week or more without reading scripture or prayer. And then we wonder why we get beat up when we go out into the world. Why does Satan you know, get, get over on us? Why, why does the flesh win out over the spirit? It's because we've starved the spirit to the point of weakness. 
And we fed the flesh so that it's nice and strong and healthy. Paul said in Galatians 5.24, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. You see, the flesh cannot be neutralized. It cannot be suppressed. It has to be crucified. It has to be killed. Now, if we would reverse that order, feed the spirit and, and, not, and, and starve the flesh, we'd experience more and greater spiritual victories in our life, greater uh, victory over temptation. And fasting is a way of denying what the flesh wants and what it's used to getting. It's a way of weakening the flesh and building up the spirit. Spiritual men and women with effective spiritual ministry will see God increase their spiritual calling. God chooses those who are already actively serving Him to give them additional ministry. God will probably not take idle Christians down from the shelf and dust them off and then entrust them with important work like saving souls. Barnabas and Saul were very involved in ministering to the Lord before they were called to take on additional service. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 21, you are faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things. You know, if we're not doing things well, why would he give us more ministry to do? God chose experienced, proven men like the five men mentioned in verse 1 for the really important mission to the Gentiles. The truth that all ministry is to be done for the Lord is reinforced here by the Holy Spirit's command to set Barnabas and Saul apart for himself. They were God's men. The Holy Spirit said, set them apart for me so that I can use them as I would use them and to send them wherever I want them to go. Now, we see another principle here in our text, and that is that God sovereignly calls men to the ministry. The church did not choose Barnabas and Saul. A committee did not choose Barnabas and Saul. When Paul introduced himself to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.1, he said, Paul, introduced himself, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Notice that. He said, I was called to be an apostle. It was the will of God. And when you think about it, they probably would have been, the, Paul and Barnabas would have probably been the last two chosen, you know, because they were the best that the church had. Neither Saul nor Barnabas volunteered for this service. Instead, the Holy Spirit sovereignly chose the two, called them to full-time ministry service. And one more thing we can, is to be learned here is the importance of waiting for God's timing. Notice, God called them. God chose them at a specific time, at his time. The Antioch church did not make up a plan for reaching out to the Gentiles. Instead, it focused on carrying out the ministries that God had already entrusted to them. An important quality in recognizing God's will for tomorrow is to do what His will today. Why would God give us things to do tomorrow when we're not doing the things He's given us to do today? Now, it says here that when they got to the main port city of Salamis, they started preaching the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And to preach the gospel first to the Jews was Saul's practice all throughout his missionary journeys. 
As they went from synagogue to synagogue, Barnabas and Saul had John Mark helping them. And when Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch from Jerusalem after delivering the assistance that was needed there at the uh, church at Antioch, it says that John Mark went with them. Now, John Mark would desert them later on. And he'd go back to Jerusalem. But for right now, he was part of the team with Paul and Barnabas. He he, he was helping them uh, carry out their ministry. Verses 6 through 12. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bargesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood him, seeking to turn the proconsul away, that is, Sergius Paulus, from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the uh, the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell upon him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had been done, being being astonished at the teaching of the Lord... When God's people are making progress, when God is moving and the church is flourishing, you know that there are going to be attacks by the enemy. And that's what we see here. Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark, man, they had crossed the whole island from Salamis to Paphos at this time. Paphos was the headquarters of the Roman government. Plus, it was the the great hotbed for the worship of of Aphrodite or, or, or Venus. The greatest festival in Cyprus in honor of Aphrodite was the Aphrodisia. It was held for three days every spring. A lot of people would go there, huge crowds from all over parts of Cyprus and surrounding countries. They would go to this festival. And it was a city that was filled with immorality. There was a lot of prostitution that was part of Aphrodite's religious rites, right, you know, right there at Paphos. Here now in the capital, Barnabas and Saul, they meet up with this magician named Bargesus, also named, uh, called uh, Elimus. It's kind of what happened when Peter and John brought the gospel to Samaria. Remember, they met Simon? Well, Bargesus here, like Simon, was a deceiver. And he was putting his evil knowledge to use. Bargesus wasn't just a magician, he was also a false prophet, Paul says. Now, his name, that is Bar-Jesus, it means, oddly enough, son of salvation. Strange name for a deceiving false prophet. But it wasn't a coincidence that Bar-Jesus was wanting to keep himself close to the Roman governor. And, and, and think of it like this. The enemy is always ready and willing to try and influence those who rule. And I think we see a lot of that in our own country today with a lot of the things that we see in our government. Wickedness. A lot of evil in this world is done by evil influence by the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Roman governor of Cyprus was Sergius Paulus, who Luke describes him, says he was an intelligent man. 
And because he wasn't an intelligent man, he was probably curious about the different viewpoints and religious thinking. And because Bar-Jesus was a Jewish teacher, and he was part of the governor's staff, even though he was a rebel, showed that he had some interest in Judaism. To Sergius Paulus, Barnabas and Saul seemed to be just two more Jewish teachers that he could learn more from about the Jewish faith. Now, it was also Sergius Paulus's responsibility as the governor to check out any new teaching that was coming into Cyprus. So what does he do? He says, hey, you know, I want to hear more about, I want to hear more of what, Paul, uh, what, what, what Barnabas and Saul are preaching. I want to hear more about, you know, the word of God that they're teaching. And like many Jewish people at this time, Bar-Jesus also had a Greek name, like John and then Mark. He had the, the name Bar-Jesus and also Elimus. That's what he was known by at the court of Sergius Paulus. He was coming, though, against Barnabas and Paul. He was trying to turn the governor away from the preaching of the word of God. And it might have been because he was worried that, that if Sergius Paulus got saved, it might, it might cause him his job. Knowing now that the, and, and if, if the governor got saved and, and you know, finds out, and, and after he saw Paul blind him, sees that he's a false, uh, false prophet, uh, a deceiver, that he say, hey, you know what, you can't work on my staff anymore. So he may have been you know, concerned, and that's why he was trying to get Sergius Paulus not to listen to what Paul had to say. This teaches us the lesson that Jesus taught in the parable of the tares. Whenever the Lord shows his true children, guess what? It says that the devil also plants tares, the faults along the real. Saul, notice, notice when it said Paul full of the Holy Spirit, that's when he said you are a deceiver. Again, the importance of being filled with the Holy Spirit to have discernment, to show us things we wouldn't ordinarily know or to see. Saul recognized that Elimus was a counterfeit and then Saul, in judgment of God, temporarily blinds him. And here now, is where we read in verse 9 that his name is Paul. His name is, well, he's called Paul. His name is now changed to Paul. Why was he called Paul? Why did he change his name to Paul? Well, the, the name Paul means small or little. Now, some think that he took the name Paul as, as an act of humility because he didn't want to have the proud name of Saul. It's also possible he took the name of the governor, you know, Sergius Paulus, who was his first convert. So this miracle, the blinding of Elimus, when Sergius Paulus saw this, it was a sign to him that Saul and Barnabas, man, they were servants of the true God. And they preached the true message of salvation. And as a result, the Sergius Paulus believed and was saved. The word astonished here literally means to strike out, to force out by a blow, but, but it's found only in the sense of, of knocking one out of his senses or self-possession. That is to strike with astonishment. That means that, that, that the governor, Sergius Paulus, man, he was struck with astonishment. He was blown away. He was powerfully shaken out of his self-contentment. It's as if the word of God was te- uh, or teaching of the Lord, it was as if, you know, it... it, it 
he was convinced, Sergius Paulus was convinced that Jesus was Lord. It wasn't just the miracle. It wasn't just the blinding of Elimus that brought Sergius Paulus to the Lord because God wouldn't just have us put our faith in miracles. It wasn't the sign. It wasn't the miracle. It was the scripture that struck the blow that touched Sergius Paulus and opened his heart. And that's why Paul said in, in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the word believed, and we hear it used a lot when it comes to God. Oh, I believe in God. But the word believed when it comes to being born again, the word believed means to believe absolutely. It means to have faith, to be persuaded. It means to rely upon and to trust. And even though many will say, I believe in God, they don't believe in Him absolutely. They don't have faith in Him. Complete, they don't, they're not persuaded by Him. They're not, they don't rely upon Him or trust Him. It's good, it's good to remember the lessons in this passage here. Leading somebody to Jesus isn't just a matter of being clever or being a good speaker or making a successful sales pitch. It's going to take all-out warfare against the principalities and the powers and the rulers of darkness because there will be a battle. Saul and Barnabas battled. Battled bar Jesus for the governor's soul. Verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. As we saw here, the attacks from the outside, all right, through, through Bargesus, attacks uh, on the work of God just don't come from those on the outside. We expect them to come from people on the outside. But even more deadly are his attacks, Satan's attacks on the church from the inside. So it's not surprising that, 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 that Satan tried to overthrow God's work through the, through the Gentiles by putting pressure on the inside, working on the inside with John Mark. That pressure came through John Mark's desertion, desertion. After finishing their work in Cyprus, Paul and his companions, they set sail from Paphos and they come to Perga and Pamphylia and John Mark leaves them and he goes back to Jerusalem. Why John left and why he went back to Jerusalem, we don't know. Maybe things got real heavy over there. Maybe he got fearful that I don't want to do this anymore. Whatever the reason, it wasn't good enough for Paul. And Paul didn't take too kindly to it. He didn't want him back. Even though John left the team, it didn't stop the ministry to the Gentiles. But what it did do, sad to say, is split up the fruitful team of Paul and Barnabas. Division and unity, or I'm sorry, division and disunity in the church continues to hinder works of God. That have, they've been able to stand up against outside opposition, but sometimes inside opposition, it, it, the church doesn't recover from it. Now it did here with John, and Mar John Mark and, and Paul and Barnabas later on, which we'll see as we continue through the book of Acts. Even though God blessed their ministry, Paul and Barnabas still experienced trials. 
And this was a very difficult trial for the three men, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. Mark had been their servant, but he didn't last past the Cyprus ministry. In closing, this is what A.T. Robertson said about John Mark. He said, John Mark flickered in the crisis. He flickered in the crisis. I like what Charles Spurgeon has to say. Affliction may put out our candle, but if it can't silence our song, we will soon light the candle again. I like that. And you know what? It did happen. Later on, Paul accepted John Mark back into the ministry, and John Mark and Paul and Barnabas served together. And that's the bottom line. We will have, the enemy will attack the church. It will attack its, its servants. And unfortunately, sometimes it, it, people believe the devil and they give in to him and, and you know, it, it can, it can you know, bring disunity. The bottom line is, man, we need to recognize that we're serving God. And we can't allow those kinds of things to keep us separated. We need to confess our sin. We need to say, I'm sorry if we need to. We need to say, you're forgiven if you need to. And we need to get together and serve the cause. And the cause is Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to work together. We got enough things going on against us outside. We need to be united on the inside. And we need to keep our eyes on Christ. And we got to serve him through all difficulties. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the lesson here this morning. And Father, the greatest lesson, Lord, is knowing that we serve you. We serve you, God. And we know that the enemy is going to attack. And again, the the great need for the, the filling of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, is that we can recognize the enemy like Paul recognized Elimus. Recognize he was a devil, he was a false prophet, and that he was anti-God. And Lord, help us to depend upon the Spirit, to give us discernment, to see the things that are not of God, to see the things that are, are out to destroy the work of God and the Word of God and the people of God. So Father, help us. May we keep our eyes on you. May we keep them in the Word and our prayers going to heaven, God. Father, we thank you for the offering we will receive today, God. May it bless you. May it glorify you. And Father, we thank you for for your generosity and your faithfulness to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.